Tell your neighbor, you are glad they're here. Glad you're here today. Glad you're here today. Hey, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 5, continuing the Sermon on the Mount. But I want to have a little fun before we get started. And uh, I had an interesting experience happen to me last Wednesday. I was here in church in the Connect class, and then I went down to the powerhouse to hang out with the kids, and they're having this half-court basketball shot with these big prizes that if you can make it from half-court. Well, naturally, the male ego took over. The only problem is I made a shot, but a number of the youth pastors, Pastor Cole told me I did not make it. And the Bible tells us that if you're offended with your brother, you go to your brother. And he still did not believe me. And then it says, if you still have issues, take it to the church. So I am bringing my basketball shot to the church this morning for you to judge one of the more monumental moments of my life. So take a peek here and tell me what you think if I made it or not. Hey, everybody get up. It's time to slam now. We got the real jam going down. Welcome to the Space Jam. Here's your chance. Do your dance at the Space Jam. Now, that is a high school picture, I think. Someone said I look like Michael Jordan, but I don't see it. Um, Now, how many think I missed it? You you don't think I did not make the shot. Let me see your hands. You're free to be dismissed right now. God bless you. We're so glad you came. I feel like we're going to have a unanimous vote. How many believe I made it there? All right. So that's free car washes by the youth group of my wife's car for the rest of the year. Praise the Lord. Hey, you know, you can have fun in church. And I don't mean church is, is, is an entertainment center, but I mean it, the joy of the Lord, the Bible says, is our strength. And it's laughter is one of the great gifts that God has given us. Well, we started a series uh, last week called Jesus Said What? And it's intended to kind of uh, uh, to be a shocker because the words of Christ are shocking to many people today. And it's amazing, these three short chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, historically called the Sermon on the Mount, When Jesus spoke to a large crowd of people, even Wikipedia said this about this sermon. It said the Sermon on the Mount shaped the moral borders of Western civilization. Now that's big. And if you, particularly as you're older and aging in life, and you have something to compare America to, America's radically different. I'm 61. America's radically different from when I was a boy. When I was a boy, uh, the school principal would pray every day and read a Bible verse o- over the loudspeaker. Uh, in America, uh, all, many times uh, as kids, the Pledge of Allegiance was never a question. We were citizens of two kingdoms, but we acknowledged the greatness of America. But it's a different world today. Violence was not used in our politics like it is today. I, I mean, you just look around the world, and it's, it's as if it's lost its moral anchor. Well, we threw it out as a nation in the 60s when we took down the Ten Commandments from the walls of our schools and our public places. It was literally a way of saying, God, we don't want your boundaries in our life. We want to do what we want to do. And it's produced a lot of the chaos in America today. And I suggest to you the words of Jesus are just as valid today as the day when he spoke them. And we're going to do a verse-by-verse study. It'll take eight weeks to go through the short Sermon on the Mount. It'll touch numbers of topics you'll find relevant. Last week we talked about the Beatitudes, called so because Jesus said on eight occasions, Blessed are you, and then he would describe something. Blessed are you uh, when you're a peacemaker. 
uh, blessed are you uh, when, uh, when you mourn or mourn over the condition of the world. So we looked at these things last night, and they're kind of an intro to what we're talking about today. This morning's message has three parts to it. Jesus will talk about our Christian witness to the world and if we literally act on these beatitudes as virtues in our life, if we behave this way, we'll be a witness to the word, world. He'll use the metaphors of salt and light. Secondly, we'll talk about the role of the Old Testament in our life today. And lastly, we'll talk about anger and murder. Jesus had a lot to say about it. So let's explore these things as we go. Sermon on the Mount, number two. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Let's first talk about, as a Christian, we are a witness to the world. And the first metaphor is salt. Matthew 5, verse 13, Jesus said, You are, speaking to his followers, you're the salt of the earth. Now, he's talking about good old table salt. He's talking about sodium chloride. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Now, this is chemically impossible. Salt will always be salt. But what he's talking about is if it becomes diluted or mixed with impure things, it will lose its value to preserve. We'll talk more about that. Jesus even said it's no good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. It, one of the favorite things to do, I would imagine, that most people like to do is eat good food. Yeah. Now, you know, uh, you see movies or perhaps you've been in, in jail and they tell me the food's not too good there. But if you were to cook at home, we, we cook a lot of vegetables, and uh, if you take broccoli out of the bag and uh, you cook it in microwave, whatever you do, put it in the, put it in the, in the pan, uh, if you put salt and pepper and some butter on that when it comes out, I'm telling you what, maybe even melt a little cheese on it. Yeah, I mean, you're ready to rock and roll. Are you, are you with me? But if you leave salt out of it, it's like, ooh. I mean, it, it brings out flavor. It makes it palatable. And in a very real way, Jesus said that's what your Christian life is intended to be. A Christian life is called to be a witness for Christ to the world. The word witness reminds us of a courtroom scene when the judge or, or, or the attorney calls a witness. And that witness simply tells what he or she knows. All that witnesses are called to do is to give an account, not for what they think, but everybody's watching and listening to them because what they do or say will bring bearing over whether they're innocent or whether they're guilty. Well, that's what we are. We're a witness, and we do this by two ways. Number one, we live a righteous life, a good life, a godly life, a biblical life, and that gives us a platform to speak words to others about Christ. If my platform is not there, people won't listen, but if I'm just living good without the words, they won't know why. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, it says that we are... Christ's ambassadors. When you think about ambassador, an ambassador goes and represents the nation. Uh, Nikki Haley is the, is the former governor. She is the ambassador of the United States to the United Nations. She's a toughie. Boy, she's a good one. I hope she runs for politics one day. But, but, but she represents America. She represents our system of government. And, and that's what we're doing. We're an ambassador for Christ to the world, a representative. And it says these amazing words, God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. In other words, if you can imagine this picture, all of humanity is walking towards this cliff, this bottomless cliff. If you fall off, it's bad. If you fall off, you're destroyed. But yet, and people that are walking that way have no clue. It's like an illusion. They don't see anything, they don't see anything out there. It's going to be fine. I'm just going to keep doing my thing. 
But people that know that that cliff is out there of eternal judgment are on this side begging to people, shouting, going through the crowd, trying to bring them back to Christ. Well, that's what our witness is like. Now, before I go any deeper, I realize my, something I have omitted to do. After I did the little funny about the basketball, I wanted to honor all our youth workers here. So if you're here today, and if you work with the youth in the powerhouse, I want you to stand right now, and I want to say thank you. Come on, everybody that works with the kids down there, I want you to give these folks a big thank you for what they do. There are about 15 or 20, 20-somethings down there. There's older adults, and I'm telling you what, they're helping those kids uh, find the straight and narrow way, and we're honored to have them as a part of our church, even if they don't say I made my shot. Um, okay, here we go. Uh, let's go back to salt now. Salt has two functions. Salt that, that has spiritual application. Salt makes you thirsty. If you like pretzels, how many know you can't just eat a bag of pretzels? You've got to have something to drink, okay? You've got to have a glass of iced tea or something to drink there because salt makes you thirsty. And I want to suggest a real Christian's lifestyle makes other people spiritually thirsty. You know, everybody in the world needs hope. Everybody needs purpose. Everybody needs peace. But when they see you go through something, for example, may a family, maybe you lose your job or a family member gets cancer, whatever the case is, and everybody's watching you. They know that you're a Christian, but they watch you go through it how, and they think how they would go through it. None of you liked it. Everybody sought medical care, but even in the midst of the sadness, you knew that God was still a good God and there was hope to see your spouse again. They all came to your funeral, the people at work, and perhaps your spouse or your child died or your mom died and, and everybody had prayed together, but they saw before the casket closed, you with a tear in your eye say, Mom, I've loved you. You're the best mama in the world and I'll see you again one day. And I look forward to that day. And, and, they, walk, and they look at you and saying, I want that. I want a sense of confidence knowing that God's real. So salt does this to us. When we're salty as Christians, we're living a life that, that, that makes people want it. But the second thing, perhaps more significant, are, uh, salt is a preservative. Today we've got mono, soto, pseudo, shudo, whatever it is, is a food preservative. And I mean, it can stay on the shelf for <laughs> six months or a year or whatever. But in the ancient era, salt was primarily how you preserved foods, meats, how you made them last through the wintertime. Uh, salt was a preservative. And Jesus calls his disciples to be a preservative in culture. Uh, culture has lost its way regarding truth. People don't know what's right and they don't know what's wrong. And that's because you and I need to sprinkle some truth in our culture. We need to let people know what's right and wrong. And, and, and they may not like it today. They may hate it. They may call you a bigot. You do it with humility. But how many know it's the truth that sets people free? And I hope that I have the courage to be someone that is salt in a, in, in a confused world as you do. I want to show you something. Franklin Graham, I, I read a Facebook post from him. Uh, does anybody know who this is? Jim Carrey? Uh, dumb and Dumber. Now, now think about the smartness of this. A guy that excelled in a movie called Dumb and Dumber is going to tell people to stop apologizing and say yes to socialism. In other words, let there be more government control and less individual freedom. Government can solve my problems better than I can. This massive collective, although it's not worked anywhere in the earth, Although right now in Cuba and Venezuela are perfect examples, 
You know, uh, Cuba was a step more towards communism, its bigger brother, but it's a failure in the world, and he's just out there saying this to impressionable minds. You know what's needed is a little salt. And that's what Franklin Graham did when he sprinkled this. Under socialism in Eastern Europe, churches were burned and pastors were imprisoned. Because here's the deal, when you have what amounts to dictatorships, whether you call them fascist, communist, socialist, whatever the case is, everybody's got to toe the line. And just as in Jesus' day, listen, uh, uh, Herod tried to kill baby Jesus because he didn't want a king that would be a threat to him. Are you with me today? This is what they do. Uh, in Moses' era, when he was a baby, Pharaoh tried to kill all the male children because he wanted to remove the threat. And this is just what man-centered government does. Eastern Europe burned pastors. pastors in, in Russia, every Orthodox priest was killed. Ninety miles from our shores, the people of Cuba have lived in misery for years. Yet our Hollywood superstars go there and, and applaud it. The Castros were ki uh, killed hundreds of priests and pastors and imprisoned others. Venezuela today is experiencing a historic human migration as millions are fleeing socialism and the poverty that it brings. The world sees this. Salt makes people say, huh, I didn't know that. And hopefully they go to Google or they ask someone or they read a book and find out if it's true. And it helps bring a pause to a nation that has lost its boundaries. This is just one example. There are many. But when Jesus went on to say we could lose our saltiness, another word to say it is it's defiled. Scientifically, it's impossible to make salt flavorless, but it can be polluted or mixed with impure substances, and it can no longer be a preservative. For example, well, if you buy salt for your cows or your deer, you get a pure bag of salt. But yet, if you were to try to get some salt out of the ground, it would probably have so much dirt in it that it wouldn't be usable as a preservative. It's polluted. And in the same way, if our lives are polluted, we won't be salty. If our lives are polluted, we will have lost our ability to influence people. What would you feel? Listen, I'm honored that you're here today. Uh, you're here today because, first and foremost, you love God. You wanted to worship Him. And hopefully you're here because you wanted to hear a message from the Bible, from God's Word. I'm a nobody. I'm just a guy that's, you know, bringing the bread this morning. But if you saw me this week uh, at Shooters, or if you saw me tonight at Shooters, sitting next to some gal at the bar, you wouldn't be here next week. And you wouldn't be here next week, not because I still don't have the ability to teach an intelligent view of the Bible and an applicable view of the Bible, but because my lifestyle wasn't matching up with... Well, it's the same on your side of the pulpit. See, salt is salt, and this is my influence, my primary influence, so you can go out in the world and be salt in the world. And this is what Jesus is saying. We're a witness to the world. Punch your neighbor and say, be salty. Be salty. Look at the verse 14. Not only are we a witness to the world with salt, but light. You're the light of the world. Look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. Now think of the power of a light. When I was a, a teenager, I, I loved the outdoors. I loved to hunt. Uh, I remember going vividly one evening, and it was, it was one of those foggy. The fog was there. The, the, the ceiling was low. You couldn't see a whole lot, but it was still, you know, whatever, four or five in the afternoon. It was a little misty rain. It was going to turn to sleet. And as it started getting darker, I realized I need to come home. I wasn't having any luck with the ducks that day, and uh, I need to head home. And I, I went, which I thought was the right direction, but I was confused by the darkness, the clouds. I thought I was going in the right direction, but I ended up about 30 minutes later coming back to the same spot. 
And if you've ever been in a place like that, I was panicking. Because we didn't have phones, we didn't have GPS, we didn't have all that stuff, and I was just kind of walking around aimlessly. Well, back then I was half squirrel, and I climbed this super tall tree, and I got tall high enough in the air where I could see lights. And when I saw the light, I knew that the town of Coldwater was to the south of me. I knew the interstate was to the east of me, and I, I knew my home was to the north. And the light showed me the way to go. And I want to suggest to you this is exactly what it means, the witness of our lifestyle to the world. When we are living it, we're showing people where to go. Jesus said, you're the light of the world, and then he tells us how to let our light shine. I don't have any problem with the acknowledging the fact that as a Christian, I, 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 I'm a light. But my problem is letting people see it. My problem is turning the light on at the right time. Uh, verse 15, people don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. <laughs> no, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. If you go home tonight, for example, maybe you go out and you thought you'd be home early, but you weren't, all the lights were out, conserving electricity, and you're kind of finding your way around. The first thing you look for is a light switch. And that light switch shows you where to go. It keeps you from stumbling. It keeps you on the right path. And I think you know where I'm going with this. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. Don't hide it. In the same way, verse 16, Jesus said it dramatically. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So this is the second part of this idea of, of living a righteous life. Uh, when you and I are living it, how many know people will be anxious to hear it? I, I was riding in a car with someone the other day, didn't know him that well, but uh, we were going through an intersection and, and there was a homeless man. And it's really, hard, it's really hard for me to tell legitimate people that need help and people that are just hustling. But this guy started, and I watched him look at him a little bit. He was trying to pray and discern. Before I knew it, he'd pulled up. He gave me $20 and said, give it to him. He didn't say another word to me because he wasn't doing it for me. But his light was shining as he did it. So when I talk about letting your light shine in the world, I'm not talking about you as an egomaniac telling people to look at you and look at how great I am. I'm just simply saying if you're living the Christian life, people know it. If you're living the Christian life, listen, you just being around and doing the right thing and saying the right thing. A little funny story, I, I, I was hunting last year with, with some friends and we were in a restaurant and a table over, this is just, just country, middle of nowhere, a table over, this guy was just cussing and GD this and GD that and, and somebody said loud enough where I could hear, they said, hey, you better quit, there's a preacher over there. And I said, it doesn't matter that I'm here. It doesn't make a difference whether I hear it. There's somebody else you need to worry about. Like, it's not about me. Come on, it's about the Lord. But there's chances to just do something, to say something, not to draw attention to ourselves, but like a mirror, let the reflection point to Christ and let people see Christ in us. And this is the first thing in this morning's message. Jesus wants all of us to be a witness, to be salt and light. Don't withdraw from society. Don't isolate yourself from society. And listen, don't fear society. Because in our world today, I don't like the terms that we use, but they're just out there. There is a push on what's called the political left. There's a, there's a push towards the use of violence to get your way. 
It's a dangerous thing because it's not just the political left. It's a movement of people in America that don't hold biblical values of respect, that don't hold biblical values of, of the a non, not to use violence and force. And it's out there. You could say something on Facebook. You could say something in a classroom. And literally, somebody could come at you. Yeah. Well, listen, it's the world we live in today. But listen, if you're going to be a Christian, man up. If you're a lady, put on your big girl panties. Are you with me today? I mean, I mean, we're Christians. And the problem is this whole world is heading towards a cliff and about to fall off. And they're in need of a Savior. How about it? Let it start with us. Oh, come on, give the Lord a good, a good hand today. Let's look at the next section, verse 17. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament law and the prophets. Now this is, a, this is a, 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 it's kind of a new part of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, verse 17, Jesus said, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now when he said the law, he's referring to the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, the Decalogue, the prophets, all the prophetic writings, but he's pretty much saying the whole Old Testament. And I want you to ask this question broadly. What I want to do in this section is I want to talk to you about the, the role of the Old Testament in Jesus' day and in our day. Uh, how many like uh, ribs? Catfish. Who said they're having it today? What's your address? All right. Ribs and catfish. Do you know you couldn't have been a good Jew in the Old Testament and live under the ceremonial laws and eating ribs and catfish? There would be no rib shacks in Jerusalem. Are you with me today? So you're a Christian today, and you read through parts of the Old Testament, and you say, man, I like catfish. Does that mean God doesn't want me to eat it? Well, let me help you with a little bit of this today. But before we kind of talk about the specifics, let's answer the question, what's the purpose of the whole Old Testament? Why do we have two-thirds of our Bible? Uh, Jesus said, verse 17, I didn't come to abolish or do away with it, but I've come to, and here's the key word, fulfill it. For truly I tell you, Jesus said, unless heaven and earth disappear, which the Bible says one day they will. If you read this morning in our Bible reading, which I highly encourage you. Coming to church is great, but reading your Bible every day will do something to change you, I promise you. We've got a Bible guide in the back of your chair, or it's in the lobby, or we've got it on our app. You can download it. Every day it's two chapters. This morning's reading was in the book of Revelation, and literally Revelations 21 talks about a new heaven and a new earth. So it's coming one day, but Jesus said this, Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen. Now your old King James translation says a jot or a tittle. A jot is like, if we make an I, it's the dot on the top. A tittle or the slash of a pen, if you make a P, all it takes this is to make an R. And it's that dot and it's that R. The smallest part of the law Jesus is talking about, Jesus is saying it's all going to be accomplished. Nothing's going to disappear, but everything's going to be accomplished. So what do you mean, Pastor? Two key words. Jesus is coming to say, I'm going to fulfill the Old Testament, and everything in its intent will be accomplished through my life. So you say, Pastor, what is the purpose of the Old Testament? I'll tell you, friends, this clearly, it is to reveal Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the King of kings, and as the Lord of lords. The whole Old Testament, if you look in the book of Genesis, after Adam and Eve's sin, as soon as it happened, God made a prophecy that one day there was someone coming that was born from the seed of a woman. I mean, no, the seed refers to the sperm of the man, but the seed of a woman, and he's going to crush Satan's 
with his heel. He's talking about Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, that defeated Satan on the cross. When Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, they were clothed with animal skins, and they didn't get them from Dillard's. Are you with me today? Animals died, blood was shed so they could be covered. All that foreshadowed the cross because the Bible teaches without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Sin will keep you out of God's eternal presence. Sin must be forgiven, and God has prescribed a way that a life for a life. And Jesus gave a perfect life. He paid the penalty. Now he says, anybody that wants the benefit of that, come to me. And the whole rest of the New Testament is about Jesus going to the cross. The rest, I'm sorry, the Old Testament. The rest of the Old Testament is a pointing of Christ uh, uh, to what he accomplished. Now, Galatians 3.24, and then you say, well, Pastor, how about all those little rules like the, you know, I mean, I get lost in the rules of the Old Testament. Well, let me tell you what they were for. They were to show people that no one could be righteous. No one could keep every perfect rule and every perfect law. We must be saved by something called grace and mercy. Galatians 3.24, Paul summed it up this way. He said the law, or this Old Testament, was our tutor, or to train us, a schoolmaster, to do what? Bring us to Christ, so we may be justified by faith. So this is the whole purpose of it. But now let's bring a little application to our life today. Jesus is already affirming the validity, but notice what he says, verse 19. Anyone who sets aside or ignores... One of the least of these commands and teaches others, it's not good. You'll be called least in the kingdom, but the value is if you practice and teach it, you'll be called great in the kingdom. So what, what, what is my point? The Old Testament properly interpreted is relevant today. The Old Testament has value to us. Let me underscore this. 2 Timothy 3, in the New Testament, Paul said, you have been taught the Holy Scriptures. What is that? It was the Bible. It was the Jewish, uh, it was the Torah, the prophets. It was collectively Genesis through Malachi. You've been taught the Bible from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive salvation that comes by trusting in Jesus Christ. So Jews could be saved by reading the Old Testament because the Old Testament pictured the Messiah that was going to come. Now, there was no New Testament when that was written. The New Testament was not canonized until years later. It was not all recognized as Scripture. So again, they're underscoring the validity of Old Testament, not to practice ceremonial law and dietary law. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Jesus came to bring us to a whole new place with the law, but yet there are still moral principles. There are still truths in terms of origins. In the beginning, God, preexistent, eternal, created intelligent designer. There are principles applicable to us today. But notice, I I want you to see that phrase when Jesus said, if you ignore these commands, you'll be called least. Now I want to tell you something that makes me very sad, but I'm seeing increasingly across America some religious people are ignoring the teaching of Scripture. I hear preachers today that I used to hold in high esteem teaching universalism And universalism teaches basically that everybody's going to heaven. And that's not what the Bible says. I hear people teaching today that uh, uh, not only is universalism, everybody's going to heaven. I hear people say there's no such thing as hell. Well, these are clear teachings of the Bible. But there's also things that, it's it's to me, American Christianity is, is being divided. And some call the division liberal and conservative. 
And this I don't like because conservative sounds like politics. And how many know we are above politics? We are politics is, is under us, but yet conservatism is, is a valid thing. But anyway, liberal and conservative, and what we're finding is many of our old traditional denominations in America that were founded on the Word of God no longer believe the Word of God. They've become, whatever you want to call it, liberal or deluded in their thinking, and the Bible has lost its, its inerrancy for truth. And now what's happening, whole denominations have two parts to them, those that hold to the Scripture and those that don't. Let me, sadly, I want to show you something about my heritage in the Methodist Church. This is not a dig at Methodists. I just read this this week. I have many, many Methodist friends that are deeply committed Christians, love God, read the Bible, are as orthodox in their theology as I am, but some are not. This is a Methodist preacher in Kentucky. Uh, she's running a pro-life abortion group. She says it's... I'm sorry, pro-abortion, uh, thank you, pro, I just want to see if you were listening. A pro-abortion group, it's time for the religious left to rise up. Now let me tell you what she said. She said she believes religious leaders should be more involved in promoting abortions and helping people get them, not less. Now why am I sharing that today? When you lose biblical authority as the God for life, when you cease to believe that the Bible is the absolute truth, inerrant Word of God, you end up with all sorts of human definitions of right and wrong. And I don't, I don't have time to go into this deeply emotional subject today for all of us. But let me just summarize quickly. There's no way you can read your Bible and not know that God created life and life begins in the womb. I, I read uh, 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 this week that someone said a, a life doesn't begin until they're loved. I don't want to quote it because I may quote it wrong. But the Bible teaches, if you would just read Psalm 139, and you would see the hand of a Creator knitting together a human being in the mother's womb. You would see the hand of the Creator knowing not this blob of fetal tissue, but you would see the Creator bringing together life in the womb, ordering the number of their days. If you would read from Jeremiah, the first verse, uh, verse or two, God said, Jeremiah, I knew you before you were born, and I called you to be a prophet for the nation. This is truth from a biblical perspective, but we see it in the world, even in the eyes of religion in many cases, and it's saying something different. I only share this today because the truth of the Scripture must be elevated as our God. Listen, I, I don't want to point fingers at people. When I point one at you, I've got three pointing at me. I want to make sure I'm looking in the mirror every day and make sure that I'm endeavoring to live by the commandments of God and to do what's right, but I also want to have enough salt to stand up and when something's biblically wrong, have the courage to say it. Come on, somebody give the Lord a good, a good hand. I need to be honest with you. If you just got mad at me and just got offended, it's because culture has a greater hold on you than Scripture. Now you're making me get hot up here. If... if if I'm just giving you opinion or if I'm just shooting a basketball goal, that doesn't mean a thing in the world. Listen, but when we're talking from the Bible, that's why I do my best on Sunday mornings is to do nothing but teach the Bible's view on subjects. So you and I can have an intelligent, reasonable, rational view of what the Bible teaches and in what we believe. Look at verse 20. Jesus said, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees and teachers of the law, 
Now, Pharisees were an interesting group. If you look at your Bible, the time between uh, uh, Malachi and Matthew is about 400 years, and nothing's going on spiritually, but yet 400 years later, now listen, that's almost twice as, uh, as, uh, twice as long as America's been a nation. At that period of time, when Jesus comes on the scene, they've got Herod's temple, they've got a sacrificial system, everything is going on, and guess who upheld the Bible? The Pharisees. They had the Old Testament in, in, just infused in the life of the people, but the only problem is they had majored on the rules of religion and had lost the relationship with God. Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that, you'll not enter, enter the kingdom of heaven. They practiced all the rules of religion. They were so detailed in terms of even their tithing. There's one passage that says you take leaves from your mint plant, like you put in sweet tea. You take leaves and every tenth one you give to the Lord. But then he said you neglected the weightier matters. In essence, friend, they refused to follow Jesus and they crucified him. And Jesus said in Matthew 23, What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup. But inside, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Listen, it is easy to be righteous in the eyes of your friends. Listen, you come to church, you have a Bible, you act like you know Scripture, you know, you drop something in the offering, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you, you're doing the routines, but inside, all you've been thinking about is if you're going to get rolls or cornbread at Cracker Barrel. Are you with me today? I mean, in, in the message, you watch some, somebody else's wife walk in, and it's like most of the message is... It's like we're things that we're supposed to do that the Pharisees did, but they lost the most important thing, to love the Lord their God with all their heart, all their mind, all their soul, and all their strength. See, this is where the Pharisees miss it. So let me wrap this point up. We're out of time. How do we properly interpret and apply the Old Testament today? Most importantly, you interpret the Old Testament through the New Testament and the completed work of Christ. In other words, in the Old Testament, you read about an animal sacrifice on Passover. Well, how many know Jesus is our Passover lamb? He basically undid or did away with all the ceremonial and all the dietary laws and all those things that were intended to point to Christ. But you read the, the old through the eyes of the new, it supersedes it. Uh, that's why we can eat catfish today. Especially if it's fried with ketchup. Here's another good one. When I read the Old Testament, I read it as a viable history of God's dealing with humanity. I read the book of Genesis as an accurate starting place for science. The third thing is I embrace the moral teaching of the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments were not a bad thing to have on the walls of the schools. I think it was better to have the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not murder, than a police force and metal detectors in schools. Now listen, I'm... If I was in the school system today, I would find money to have an armed police officer there. If I was there, I would find every competent person that can seal carry, and I'd want them to protect my kids. If I was in the school system today, because unrighteousness, craziness is rampant in America today. We've lost our collective mind. But yet the commandments are there, and America has lost that. And then lastly, learning from the examples of the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 10, it talks about Israel's fall in the wilderness. said this happens as an example to keep us from setting our hearts on evil as they did. Now, I had to move quick through that, but let me look at this last part in these last few minutes. When Jesus talked about murder and anger. Verse 21, Jesus said this, and this is kind of a new section 
But again, he's taking the Old Testament and he's making it relevant to us. He's improperly interpreting it. Jesus said, verse 21, you've heard that it was said, this is what the Pharisees were saying and their interpretation to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now the word murder, it's the sixth commandment. Murder does not, it didn't say kill. The proper translation is murder. Murder does not include killing in self-defense. Murder does not include wars sanctioned by God. And there can be such a thing as a just war. Murder does not include capital punishment that follows the due process of law. Murder does not include accidental manslaughter. But verse 22, Jesus is going to take it deeper now. Jesus said, I tell you. Uh, he's going to do the same thing next week. Now, next week, you, you may want to skip next week. Next week, we're going to talk about adultery, lust, and divorce. So uh, that may be a good one to miss next week. I'm just kidding. But Jesus said this. Uh, I got lost. Where am I? Verse 22. I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And we're going to explore that in just a moment. If you say to your brother or sister, Raka, it's an Aramaic word about calling someone an idiot, you're answerable to the court, more judgment. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Just see it simply as this. Anger can lead me to judgment. Anger can lead me to being judged if I don't deal with it. Um, Jesus was basically talking about an attitude of our heart. And this is something all of us have to deal with. Now look at verse 23. If you're coming to church, if you're offering your gift at the altar, if you're simply being a good religious person, and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, in other words, somebody's mad at you, the strangest thing, leave your gift in front of the altar, first go and be, reconciled. say it again, reconciled. reconciled. Now he's talking specifically about your brothers and sisters, their fellow Jews, or in our case, fellow Christians. Be reconciled first and then come and offer your gift. Which he's saying is reconciliation with people is more important than the religious act or the religious duty. Because it deals with the heart. Settle matters quickly. Watch it go into judgment again. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and you'll be thrown in prison. Once again, uncontrolled anger can lead us into judgment. Here's, here's the application. A heart full of anger must be dealt with. Reconciliation is more important than our religious ritual. And it doesn't matter who did what. Without reconciliation, our religious acts can mean nothing. Now, let me illustrate this for you how this might work. Let's say, let's say you're in law enforcement and you've got to be tough. And I honor today anyone in law enforcement that's here. Let's say you're trying to live the Christian life and uh, you're doing your best to, to be godly and all of a sudden somebody in your, in your squad or in your group, you're both competing for a, a, a raise and uh, your buddy lies on you. Uh, he, you. You get cheated and the job was rightfully yours and you see him in the hall and your not-so-Christian side comes out and you bump with him a little bit. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. You bump with him a little bit and your chains and stuff jingle and before you know it, you've got to have guys that separate you. And as a Christian, you go home that night and you get on your knees with God. First thing you need to acknowledge is that, God, I was wrong in what I did. But the second thing you've got to do is you've got to dig that anger out of you. Now, let me read another verse, and I want to come back to how you get that anger out of you. Look at, look, look at Ephesians. This emotion of anger is not a sin, but it can lead to sin. 
Jesus was angry when he turned the temple money changers upside down. But rarely is righteous anger employed. Usually anger causes somebody to be violent and domestic violence is called in or the police are called in or you lose your job. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians. Don't sin by letting anger, what's it say? This is the whole problem. Anger in of itself is only emotion and it is not wrong. But when it controls us, we're in trouble. Then he says, don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Deal with it quickly. Anger gives a foothold to the devil. So what does that mean? Satan wants to destroy you through your anger. Let's go back to the policeman that's here. That policeman, he made a mistake. He got in their face. Maybe he even threw a punch. I don't know what, before they got separated. Well, he was in the right. Somebody lied about him. They did him wrong. It should be a review board and all that. Well, maybe it should. But for him to let anger control him and do what he did, he was wrong, and it undermined his Christian witness. He gets on his knees that night before God or gets in a quiet place. He takes a walk or he parks the squad car in the park somewhere and starts talking to God. and said, Lord, what I did was wrong. I got a splinter embedded in my hand, and it's covered up, and I can't just put a Band-Aid on it. I might have to ask you to help me get it out. Well, how do you get it out? Just what he's doing right there in that squad car. When you start talking to God, come on, the needle is at work. When you're praying, and then sooner or later you're going to have to say, and Lord, I'm going to forgive him. I'm going to forgive him even though he took money from me, even though he lied about me, even though he did wrong to me. I, I, I'm going to get that out because reconciliation has to be more important. Even, come on now, between us and people that aren't on our side because the biggest winner is not him but it's you. And that thing may take a few days to heal, but one day he's going to walk back in that squad room and he's going to say, before the captain gives out the orders of the day, he's going to say, Captain, can I have a word just a second? He said, yeah. He said, listen, I, I want to publicly say that I lost my cool the other day, and I, I, I punched Tom over there, and I, I publicly want to say I was wrong. And, Tom, I want to ask you to forgive me. My behavior was inexcusable, and uh, I hope you guys will pray for me that I'll never do that again. Something powerful happens when you humble yourself because everybody knows what's right and what's wrong. Listen, everybody knows what's going on in our politics today. If you'll just stop and look and listen and not be brainwashed, it makes you can angry or it can make you pray. And see, you get this anger out of your system. You say, Pastor, I can't. I've been angry forever, and I've gone through anger management and everything. Let me help you with this. For some of you, this will be the most important scripture of the day, and then I'm going to close. Galatians 5.19, it says, When you follow the desires of your which means your flesh, that part of you that's not under God's control. The results are clear. Listen to hostility, quarreling, outbursts of anger. That's a longer list, but these three apply. That is, these outbursts are coming from a man or a woman that has not allowed the Holy Spirit to take charge of their life, has not allowed the Holy Spirit to mature them in their soul. But look at verse 22, and there's such great hope here. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our life. Love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Isn't that exactly what was missing when you punched a guy in the face? Is it just possible that when you're on your knees the next time, and not just forgiveness is on the chart, but you can say, Lord, I, I want to ask the Holy Spirit to make this change in me. Something obviously in me is broken. And you said that if I submitted to you 
and I walked with you, you would help me become a different person tomorrow than I am today. And I want to ask you to do that for me. Make that change in me so anger doesn't control me and lead me to a place of judgment. Come on, give the Lord a good hand. He's worthy of praise. Why don't you stand to your feet, and uh, we're going we're gonna to close today. I had to remind you before we have our last prayer, go, stop in the lobby, pick up a constitution. If you're not registered to vote, please do it. Lots of big things that are happening, even national things that will be determined by this election, Arkansas and Texas. And again, like I said, next week I said it kind of uh, laughingly, but we're going to talk about what Jesus said about adultery, about lust, and about divorce. I don't know that I've ever taught about divorce in church because it's, so, it's just everywhere. It impacts so many of us. But I promise you I'll do it in a way that's hopefully encouraging and in a way that's challenging and endearing that'll help you be a better Christian as we walk through these things. But today, before you, you leave and you're thinking about ribs and chicken, probably ribs and, ribs and catfish, I want you to put on the screen what we learned because I want to ask you to just take five minutes before you go because the Bible says that we're not just to be a hearer of the Word, but a what? A doer. That God wants to change us when we're in His presence. That you come in today was not just a religious duty, but it's a way for you to become more closely aligned with the person God created you to be. Maybe the Holy Spirit's spoken to you, and that's, I guess, what I'm asking today. What has the Lord said to you? We're called to be a witness for Jesus. Am I speaking the words of truth? Am I living the life? Or have I disqualified myself in my testimony? Does my testimony need to be cleaned up a bit? Maybe the Lord might want you to do something. We talked about the Old Testament. Obviously, we, we can talk more about that. But look at number three, this one on anger. Don't let anger control you. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you forgive and seek reconciliation. This is particularly true for some of us that are very tender-hearted, that have had words spoken to us that are just like daggers and they're still there. You know your old cowboy and Indian movies? You got shot with an arrow and they broke the arrow off inside you. If your spouse has ever said to you, I wish I'd have never married you. Talking about things that can get inside. But can I tell you, friends, there's a way that God can come and make it stronger. I'm told if you have a broken bone that it can heal stronger than it was before when the Holy Spirit comes with His oil and His wine and healing. So just bow your head just a moment and, and you just ask the question. Say, Lord, what, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to me? Because I... I want to say yes. It could be forgiveness. It could be reconciliation. It could be going to someone that I want to, I want to keep avoiding. Maybe it's our witness. Maybe we're not vocal enough. Maybe we want people to like us more than we care about their soul. I don't know what it is. But Lord, whatever you've spoken personally to us about, we want to say yes. Because I'm pretty certain that virtually everybody in this room today wants to be a strong witness for Christ. We want to have just the right amount of salt and we want our light to shine. In Jesus' name. Let's close this way. We're going to ask our prayer team to come back to the front one last time. We'll have one last song. And unless you have an emergency, hang on with us just a second because people will be coming for prayer. But if you need prayer for anything, anything in this message has maybe touched your heart in some way, it could be anything. If you just want to talk to somebody a bit without time pressure, you come and there'll be people waiting. But the most important prayer we'd like to pray today is about your personal relationship with Christ. I've alluded several times about the cross of Christ. 2,000 years ago, very deliberately, Jesus came to sacrifice his life for your sins and mine. 
Before I was even born, I inherited the sins of Adam and I'm separated from God. Well, what Jesus did on the cross, it's like he paid the penalty that I owe. It's like you owe, I don't know, you owe money on a car and the repo man's coming because you can't pay it. And somebody, you've exhausted all your means. You can't borrow anything off credit cards or anything. But Jesus Christ comes and writes a check, pays it off, and it's, it's yours forever. That's kind of what the cross did. But what Jesus did was 2,000 years ago, it's forever settled. But the question is, have I responded to that? You see, the Bible says, to as many as received him, to those he gave the right to become sons and daughters of God, those that would believe on his name. If at Christmas time, Grandma tells you, she said, Honey, I've got a, I, I got a Christmas present for you. Come by and get it. Well, how many know that thing is under the tree? If you don't go by, it's February. It's on the dresser. If it's June and you hadn't gone by, it's still on the dresser. You got to go and get the gift from Granny. Well, there's a response to receive Christ, to literally ask Him to forgive you and make a deliberate commitment of your life to follow Him. And maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you need a fresh start with life and you need to get back on track with God. You need to know Christ as your Savior and today you want to commit to follow Him. Listen, if that's you, I'm going to encourage you when we begin to sing that you'll take a very bold step to slip out of your chair and meet someone at the cross. I promise you we will not embarrass you in any way, but we want to pray for you and give you something to help you in this biggest decision of your life. Go ahead and begin to sing, Pastor Zach. The prayer team is coming to the front. Our prayer team's coming down. If you need prayer for anything, men and women are here for you. But most importantly, if you need to get right with God today, we'll see you at the cross. I love you and thanks for coming today.